The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, good morning. If you have Bibles, go ahead and grab those suckers. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. Uh, if you're uh, new or newer here at LifePoint, let me welcome you. My name's Eric. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, and we've been going through uh, the book of Judges for the last four weeks, and this is week number five, and I hope you've been encouraged from what you've heard the Lord do so far in us and, and through us. And so I, I think what we, the, one of the reasons why we love uh, the book of Judges is because as Americans, uh, we love underdog stories. Like, we, we as a country, like, we're kind of an underdog people. Are you with me? It's like, it's like uh, how many of you have seen the movie Rudy? Okay, that just, that just aged us right there, okay? Some of you are like, I don't know. Rudy, the, the epic underdog story, the karate kid. I think maybe more of you have seen that. Karate kid. Uh, listen, Daniel LaRusso had no chance. Mr. Miyagi did a great job with that kid. All right, but here's the deal. We love that underdog story. We love, we love Rocky Balboa. I think it is the greatest epic films of all time, particularly Rocky IV, but not Rocky V. That was a disaster. We love the underdog story, the 1980 Olympics U.S. hockey team, the miracle story. USA college kids beats the Soviet Union for the gold medal. Uh, we love these underdog stories. I was looking through underdog stories this week, and, and I found one that really stuck out. It's like the biggest underdog of underdogs it was, was from uh, February of 1990 when Mike Tyson faced James Buster Douglas. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but Mike Tyson back in the day, y'all, he was a beast. Amen. I mean, I don't know if you know this. I, I mean, I'm, I'm 44, so I'm showing you how old I am. But Mike Tyson, at this point, going into the round with, with Buster Douglas, he was 37 and 0. And it wasn't just like decisions, like he would knock people out in the first round. And so he was fighting Buster Douglas. And, and listen, the odds against Buster was 42 to 1. 42 to 1. In the 10th round, Buster Douglas came out. Landed some miracle punches. Mike Tyson went down, shocked the world. Cinderella story. The reason I share some of these stories with you is, is because what we're going to read today in the Bible is, is, is God showing us uh, that what happened to Gideon. And uh, you might read this story and, and think that, that Gideon is just another one of those underdog stories. But listen, this is not uh, just a typical underdog story. This is, this is beyond underdog. I mean, it is so far beyond that, it's not even funny. And, and so this is not just a lesser team going up a better team. Th this is a story of a powerless people. I'm not kidding you. A powerless people going up against the mightiest army of the day. You with me on that? And I'm talking about powerless. So last week, in chapter 6, we looked at uh, the Midianites, and, and they were oppressing Israel. And, and, and the Bible actually refers to them as, uh, as like locusts. 
they were so many in number and so devouring to the people that they actually referred to them as locusts. And they said, you know, the Israelites, when the, the Midianites would come, they would run to the hills, they would hide underground, they would get away because these people were coming and they would take their crops, they would take their livestock, they would pillage their barns, they would take their tools. And when they were done, it was like the locusts just ate everything. It was that big of a deal. And, and so what happens is, is we see the people crying out to God, crying out for rescue, and God sends a deliverer by the name of Gideon. Now, Gideon, he's not your typical hero, y'all. Like when we first meet Gideon, he is literally hiding in a hole in the ground, Right? He's hiding because he's afraid. But God uses him and turns his fear into bravery, not because he gave him something, but simply because he promised that he would be with him. And so we see that, that courage for the Lord comes from God's presence with us and nothing more than that. And so at the end of chapter 6, God tells Gideon to mount a resistance against this massive army, I mean this massive militia, and Gideon, true to form, is completely afraid. But God reassures him through some special signs like the, the famous fleece test. We talked about that last week. He put out the fleece, it was wet. He put out the fleece again, it was dry, right? And, and he still was unsure, but God said, I'm gonna be with you. And here we are in chapter seven, and he's about to go in with the army. Look in chapter seven, verse one. Then Jerubbaal, that's his nickname, by the way. He was given that in chapter 6, verse 23, when he tore down the god of Baal, the idols uh, that were formed for the god of Baal. And so this term, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, it refers to him, that, that actually is translated as like a Baal whooper. All right, that's his nickname. How'd you like to have that name? I whoop gods, right? And so he was a false god. It wasn't really a god. And so he tore down the idols, and now he has this nickname, Baal Whooper, right? And so here he is, then Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moriah in the valley. Verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. Say too many. How many of you know when you go to battle, too many is not a problem. But he, God is saying here, the men that are with you, the people who are with you, they're too many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. God's not saying I can't do it. He's saying there's a reason why I need to limit your number. Look at what he says. There are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands, lest Israel boast over me. An original translation would say, boast against me. You have too many people. If you have this many people, Israel will boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now here's a time-tested truth, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. God's people will either praise him for victory or they will boast within themselves. We will either boast in God, praise God, give glory to God through the victories that we see and we find in our lives, 
or we will boast in ourselves. That is one of the greatest dangers that we face because our human nature, our sinful nature, our dead nature, our our nature apart from God is that in any opportunity that we get, we will boast in our own work. Listen to how we share stories. One time I did this. One time I did this. Remember that time I did this. When I was a kid, I did this. I was awesome then. Right? We live in those glory days because either... We'll boast in the Lord or we'll boast in ourselves. And the greatest spiritual danger that is, is that we will believe somehow that we can save ourselves. The greatest danger that we face is that we can believe that we have somehow saved ourselves, that we deserve some type of credit in rescuing, delivering ourselves, taking away from God the glory that he deserves. And what happens is we start to set up for ourselves our own little alternative saviors. Yeah, maybe God played a role. Yeah, maybe Jesus died on a cross. But ultimately, I'm the one who saved myself. That is completely false, and that is completely wrong, and that is completely out of the ordinary when it comes to praise and glory for God. And so the lesson we always need to understand here is that salvation is by God's grace alone through faith alone. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. We do not merit it. We do not do anything. We are nothing but dead man in the grave before God sends his spirit to call us to himself. That's how it works. And so we are in danger, like these people are in danger, to say, hey, uh, you have an opportunity to boast in yourselves when it comes to victory. But I tell you, put your praise into God. That's why he limits the army. Look in verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people, 22,000 people returned and only 10,000 remained. God says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at your army. I'm going to look at the the people that you've gathered. And I'm going to give them an out. How many of you like an out? I'm going to give you an out. If you're afraid, you can go. I could just see Gideon at this moment. Oh, great. I'm out here. Except you, brother. Anyone who's afraid, anyone who's driven, listen, sometimes when God calls us to difficult things, when he calls us sometimes to step in and step up, we're looking for an out. We're looking for an out. We're looking for a back door. We're looking for something. You know, I'm not real sure. I'm not, I'm kind of afraid here. I'm not ultimately trusting God. And so I'm looking for an out. And so what's funny here is that he gives them an out. Now, some of you may say, well, that's actually a pretty smart move. You know, it's better to go to battle with 10,000 brave men than 32,000 men and two thirds of them are just really cowards. You know what I'm saying? And so I, I think, I think maybe we could see this as a, as, a, as a good strategy because in battle, fear is contagious. Let me tell you something else. In life, fear is contagious. In a pandemic, fear is, is contagious. We're contagious people. Fear is contagious, but so is faith. So is faith. Trusting God is contagious. Have you ever been around that man or that woman or that person 
that seems to be in the lowest valley of their life, and they're saying, I'm just trusting the Lord here. I don't know the end from the beginning, but he does. I don't know the ins and the outs. I don't know right from wrong. I know that God has me in his hand because his word says that when I'm in his hand, nothing can take me out. And he works all things for the good of those who love him, and I'm trusting him. That type of faith is courageous. Look at what happens. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Are you kidding me? Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him, uh, set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. You're thinking, oh, okay, what's the symbolism here? Um, is, it, is it that the, the people who lap the water like dogs means that God likes dogs more than cats? Yes, that's exactly what it means. You don't need that text to prove that. That is in nature. God is a dog man, not a cat man. I'm just kidding. That's not even in the scripture. I just made that up, you guys. I just like dogs, and I don't like cats. Listen, God doesn't reduce the size of the army to 300 so that somehow he can work through those 300 to bring the victory. You do realize that God can bring the victory with one man if he wanted to. You realize that God can bring the victory through no man if he wanted to. You realize that, that, that in chapter three, when we saw Ehud, that was a victory through one man. We'll see it again in Samson. Samson is one man. We'll see it again through David when he takes on Goliath. One man delivers the whole nation. We see it ultimately through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. One man defeating the greatest challenge, the greatest battle of sin and death for all of mankind. And Jesus, through one man, the God-man, on the cross, delivered and rescued all of the people, anyone who would trust and believe in him. God can deliver through one man or 300 men or 1,000 men because God is sovereign and God does what God does. And so he doesn't need 300 and he doesn't need 10,000. God does whatever pleases him. And so God reduces the number of soldiers. Why? Because he knows that the men were too many for the people to still see clearly that the praise should go to him. So what is God doing when he limits you and your army? What is God doing when he takes away? God gives, God takes away. What is he doing in his taking away and his removing? Everything is done for the praise of his name. Everything is for his glory, everything for his name. And he looks at this army and he says, it's still too big. You might have an opportunity to boast in you. So I'm gonna take it down to 300. When God wants to use us, he will often humble us. Why? So that he gets the glory. So that he gets the praise. Everything in life is about the praise of his glorious grace. 
God never, ever, hear me, never delights in hurting us. But he wants to teach us to trust him, to lean upon him, to depend on him. The most important thing that we can understand in life is that God opposes the proud, those who rob and steal the glory from God. And we have to understand that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so if we've got great numbers and we've got great masses and we're, and we're charging in and we, we, we have, we've done something, we've accomplished something, then we have an opportunity to boast in ourselves. But God reduces the size of our army so that we would have no choice to trust him. What do you mean, reduce the size of our army? Well, how many of you have had a bad week? How many of you ever had a bad week? How many of you had a bad six months, a rough year, a rough season, a rough marriage, a rough, a rough uh, uh, health diagnosis. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've lost a job. Maybe, maybe you've, you've gone through an accident or, or an addiction. Or maybe something is, is not going the way that you thought in your relationships. God's sovereign purpose behind every minimizing moment are God-given opportunities to lean into him like never before. These are grace-given opportunities to lean into him. If dependence on Christ is the greatest objective for his church, then listen, weakness is an advantage. How could weakness be an advantage? Well, if it leads you to throwing yourself completely, emotionally, physically, spiritually at the feet of Jesus where the real power is, it's an advantage. Without humbling moments, you would not learn what trusting God means. You would rely that you would be the savior. You would think that, that your home is the protector. You would start to think that your job is the provider. You would start to think that the relationships around you, that that's the real comforter. But what happens when God limits your army and takes people away? Otherwise, we just simply lean on the resources we have rather than the main resource we have, which is the Spirit of God in us and Christ with us and the Christ that is for us. We'll start to lean on other things. If weakness forces us to lean upon God and God alone, sometimes that only moment of weakness that we learn the one truth that he will transform your life, that the reason God gives and the reason God takes away is for the praise of his glory and his name. Sometimes you will never know he's all you need until he's all you have. Listen, God oftentimes re reveals our idols in our lives. And we can see the idols in our lives coming because it's the things that cause us the most pain. The things that cause us the most pain are the things that we grip onto the most. God's, God's not doing things to hurt us, to punish us. The punishment that we deserve was placed upon Jesus Christ upon the cross fully. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God toward every sin, every shortcoming that I deserve. And so anything that befalls my life is not, is not me absorbing wrath. It's God shaping me to lean and trust upon him. Sometimes we need that limiting. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says it like this. He says, but God said to me, 
When I was going through a very difficult trial, I asked God, I pleaded God to remove this thing from me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? In weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might be known, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. I'm gonna boast in my weakness because when I am weak, then I am strong. First Peter, Peter says it like this. In this season, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. Your army's been limited by various trials, various things. Why? So that, so that you've been tried, grieved, trials come so that the tested genuineness of your faith and that faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes and when it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when you see Jesus Christ. Faith is what God is doing to bring about glory and honor and praise in whatever battle you are in. And whatever battle you find yourself in, the greatest resource that you have is faith. Not an army, not gold, faith. God is honored and glorified when we lean upon him, not in our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge him, praise him, trust him above all. In the battle to provide for yourself what we need more than gold is we need his presence. According to Peter, it's the most valuable asset you can have in any situation, which is faith. And so what keeps us? What keeps us? What keeps you and me from the power and the riches of God's presence? It's when we feel like we have our own riches. That's what keeps us. What keeps you from humbly falling at the feet of, feet of Christ? What keeps you from humbly crying out to the Spirit to fill you, to lead you, to give to you? What, 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 what keeps you from the presence of God is thinking that you have something to offer, something to have, something to get, something like gold. The most important spiritual truth that you can learn is that your strengths may be more dangerous to you than your weaknesses. Your strengths may be more dangerous to you than your weaknesses because your strengths keep you from leaning fully in to the presence of God, which is what we need more than anything else. To be saved, it means that you come to a point where the Holy Spirit has unveiled your eyes so that we might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To be saved means you come to the point where you realize that you cannot save yourself and you fall fully on the mercies of God, utterly unrighteous, utterly depraved, utterly hopeless, trusting that Jesus does it all. To be used by God then, it means to come to a point where you realize how absolutely helpless you are without him and how you need to fall again on the hope and the mercies of God. John 15, it says it like this. Jesus says, abide in me. I'll abide in you. You abide in me. As a branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine. 
neither can you, neither can you. How much fruit can you bear if you don't abide in Christ? He says, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Oh, you know, I I do have some ability. I do have some strengths. I do have some, some good things about me, right? Maybe. But apart from Christ, you don't bear fruit. Apart from Christ, it says you could do nothing. I used to believe I could do some things. But what happens is when God humbles you and, you, and, you, and he limits your army, you come to a place where you say, you're right, God, I can do nothing without you. I cannot save myself. I cannot redeem myself. I cannot, I cannot work for you myself. I cannot, I cannot pursue the kingdom myself. I cannot walk this walk of faith myself. I cannot produce any disciples myself. I cannot do anything in the kingdom of God by myself. I am desperate for you. And I pray that we would be a church that would learn what it means to be completely, utterly desperate for God because we can do nothing without him. But sometimes... God has to reduce your army. Sometimes he has to bring you to that point where you have no choice but to trust him. And so today, maybe today, you need to rethink what God is doing in your life. See it from a different perspective. Maybe you're experiencing an army reduction in your life right now. Maybe today you walked in and you say, you know what, I need to be open to what God is showing me and doing even though it's difficult or hard or it doesn't make sense. 300, God, 300. I had 32,000 an hour ago. I have 300. What are you doing? Maybe what God is doing in the reduction is showing you that this is about his name and his glory and he wants to work faith in you and through you so that you would depend completely on him. And like Gideon, when we start to look back on our struggles and we start to look back at, at, at how God limited our army, like Gideon, when we look back at our life and we think that victory, that's God's, that's not mine. You start to see what God did in that moment. You start to see what God did through that struggle. You start to see what God did through the 300. And you say, that victory, that had nothing to do with me, boy. Getting through that trial, that had nothing to do with me. That was all God. My only part was to trust him. My only part was to obey him. The glory is his. The privilege is mine. The glory is all his. The privilege is mine. And the 300, and the 300 men that are around you, your friends and your family, the people who are closest to you, will look at that battle and say, that was impossible. How did God get you through that? How did you get, how, what did you do? Tell me your trick. Tell me, tell me the, the checklist. Give me the five secret ways on how to have victory into your life. Give me the checklist. Give me the to-dos. You go to church, you pray, you read the Bible, you do the things, right? And so maybe I should try to find the secret to how you got that victory. And he said, no, 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 I did nothing. God gave me the victory. The people around you will say, that victory, it only belongs to God. The glory is his, the privilege is ours. And then the rest of Israel, where's the rest of Israel when these 300 men go into this battle? They're at home. But what happens to them? They get delivered too. What did they do? Nothing. Praise God. All the praise goes to God. 
The 300 praise God, Gideon praises God, the people of Israel praise God. Why? Because the victory belongs to God. Gideon was a man from a weak family in a weak tribe, and he had to face the largest army with only a handful of men. But where does his strength come from? It comes from the presence of God, faith in God, trusting God. Because when God is on your side, you're not outnumbered. You're not outnumbered. Listen, if you're taking notes, write this one down. God sends salvation not through human might, but through the weakness of humble obedience. God sends salvation not through human might, but through the weakness of humble obedience. We need to see something very important here. God would send salvation to the world not through a king. God would send salvation to the world not through a a conquering superior army, but rather God would bring salvation to the world by one who laid down his life in complete servant, in in perfect obedience to the Father. And time and time again in Jesus' life, we're confronted with the worldly weakness of Jesus. I didn't say eternal weakness, a worldly weakness. He humbled himself. Jesus was not limited in any way. He was not weak in any way. Don't get me wrong in that. But he worldly humbled himself, took the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, but beholding the glory of God in him. Remember Jesus the night before he was betrayed. He washed the disciples' feet. That's the lowest form of a servant. The king of glory, the one who rules and reigns on high, holds the world in his hands, washes the disciples' feet before his trial. They find him, they, they find him uh, mangled and mocked and spit upon, beaten and bruised. Yet, at his very disposal was 10,000 legions of angels, yet limited himself in weakness. Physically, Jesus is so weak that he can't even carry his cross. He's beaten so badly that all of his his human strength was taken from him, that he, he needed someone to carry the cross up the hill for him. And when he dies upon the cross, he dies with his hands spread wide, which is the ultimate picture of weakness. Yet through that, that weakness and obedience, God brought salvation from sin Jesus absorbed the wrath of God toward the sin and sinners. And through the perfect, humble obedience, Jesus brings resurrection power. Resurrection power to everyone who would believe. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every man, every woman alike, anyone who would come to faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. But not through merit, not through earning, Not through self-righteousness, not through religious strength, not through checking all the boxes, through humbly laying yourself down and asking God to have mercy and forgive you of your sins, trusting Jesus Christ alone for that salvation. This is a gift to be received. It is a gift to be received by faith. And even the faith to believe is a gift from God so that no man may boast because God is about God's glory. God is not, listen, he's not about your happiness. He's about his glory. He's about increasing your faith. 
And sometimes he has to limit your army to increase your faith. And so all the glory goes to God. God is the greatest victor. And so let me ask you, have you ever trusted Jesus fully for the battle that you're in or even your own salvation? Let's keep reading. Verse nine. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, arise, everyone say arise. Go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid, say afraid. What do you think the answer is there? Yeah, I'm afraid. If you're afraid to go down, go to the camp with Pura, your servant. I don't know who that is. I don't know if he's very comforter or comforting or not. I like to have a friend with me if I'm about to die. Verse 11, you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with his buddy, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. That's a lot of camels, y'all. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread. A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that the tent fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And the comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given his hand, given his hand Midian and all the camp. So now even the enemy is proclaiming the victory belongs to God. I want you to think about this. This is kind of funny, isn't it? Okay, so here's the picture. Gideon and his boy, they kind of sneak up to the camp. And they sneak up to the camp and they hear two of the soldiers talking. One of the soldiers says to the other soldier, hey, I had this dream. Oh, what's his dream? Okay, I had this dream that there was this like, like, like piece of bread like coming down and hit a tent and it flipped over. And the other guy's like, huh, that's Gideon. All right. Let me just talk to the dudes real quick. Men, if you were to describe yourself, I mean, if you, if you had to put like some symbol that represented you, be like a, like a wolf, a hammer, Thor's hammer, a lightning bolt, like something like that, I mean, I mean, how many teams have you ever heard of, yeah, we're the biscuits? 
Go biscuits. I mean, I mean, listen, that, that, that's, God did that, man. Like, it wanted to just humble Gideon. You know why? Because he probably feels like a biscuit. He's going down to the door. He's like, I, like, listen, 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 this is, this is good. Listen, sometimes when God calls you, you feel like less than a biscuit. Because a biscuit, actually, someone could feed on. Like sometimes when you're coming to the Lord and say, God, you're calling me to do this. Like I feel completely worthless. I can't feel completely helpless. I feel completely out of my element. I'm not a sword. I'm not a spear. I'm not a hurricane. Like I feel less than a biscuit. And But Gideon recognizes that in that moment, God is reassuring him. Yeah, you may feel like a biscuit, but I'm God. And so if you feel like it, don't worry. You may feel like a biscuit, but the victory belongs to me. Because why? Biscuits don't boast on how awesome they are. Unless maybe Red Lobster Cheddar Biscuits or something like that. Like if you're, if you're, if you like, I saw a sword coming down and the sword cut through the tent, then the sword could boast on how sharp it is or how pointy it is. But a piece of bread no one boasts that they're a piece of bread. And God says, that's because I get the glory. Listen, God delivers on his promise even through faltering faith. Read the next section, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He worshiped, that's the point, y'all. He worshiped. As soon as he heard it, he worshiped. He called me a piece of bread. Oh my gosh. He worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise. Everyone say arise. Arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in their hands. That's a lot of trumpets all of them with empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, you blow the trumpet. Every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Listen, God delivers on his promise even when our faith is faltering. Listen, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He is always faithful. And I find that really, really comforting because there's days, there's times in my life where I feel like I doubt, I don't trust, I don't understand, I don't see the end from the beginning. I don't see, God, how this could possibly work out. I feel like a biscuit. He says, okay, I understand you're afraid. I understand you're faithless, but I am faithful and I am more powerful. And the victory belongs to God because that's where the glory goes. I find that really comforting because a lot of people, they picture God as this like, as this like being in the sky that unless you like live absolutely perfect and have absolute conf- uh, confidence that, that if you don't, if you don't have the, the right amount, right level of faith that God won't, will, will somehow reject you. You ever think that? You ever hear those stories? Oh, you know what you need? You need to have more faith. Listen, yeah, we need to have more faith. And I agree, we need to have more faith. And that's what God tries to do is increase our faith. 
But God does not respond if we have a certain level of faith. God is always faithful. God is always just. God is always sovereign. The victory and the glory always belongs to God. So that we can't boast. That's why I said earlier, faith is a gift. It's not like you can run out and get some more faith. It's a gift. Why would it be a gift? Because if I could somehow just have enough faith, then I could say, look at all my faith. Look at how awesome I am. And that would be boasting in myself, not God. So, and so what we need to see is that God moves at times that we don't even believe. Remember, remember in Mark chapter 9, there was that man with the, with the sixth son, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, Jesus, like if you're able to do something here, would you just have compassion? And then Jesus looks back at the man, he's like, if, I mean, I mean, anything is possible for those who believe. So obviously faith is the component there. Don't you know? If you just believe, it's possible. And what does the man say? I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Ever been there? I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe you find yourself in a place like Gideon, in a place of doubt, and you just need some reassurance. Maybe, maybe you find yourself in a place where you're asking questions. Listen, ask God to reveal himself to you. Where we're faithless, God remains faithful. But hear me. Hear me. When it comes to God-honoring faith, at some point, you have to take the risk. When it comes to God-honoring faith, at some point, you've got to take a risk. You've got to take a step. He says, get up. He says, arise. I'm trusting God. God has promised that he would give us into his hands, that we would take this battle. So get up. And so at some point, you got to move. I want you to think about this. Gideon is afraid, and God is wanting to reassure him, so he sends him down to the camp. He overhears the conversation. You know, Gideon could have said, I don't want to go down to the camp. I don't, I don't care about this, this friend that you're giving me. I don't, I don't want to go. Uh, uh, is there any other way that you could assure me? Ever said that? I don't, I don't want to go. Is there any other way that maybe you could? I, I got a fleece. Maybe, maybe I could give you the fleece and let you like fold it into some origami crane and, and then I would know. Oh, I want you to go. And I want you to remember what you hear. Listen to them. Maybe, maybe, maybe the lesson that we need today is that God will patiently develop and increase your faith but it requires you from time to time to actually take a step of faith. At some point, you gotta arise. At some point, the doubt has to turn to faith and you've got to move. Because listen, that's how faith works, is it not? I mean, that's how faith works. God gives you a call, God gives you a command, maybe a little scary, maybe a little unknown. It is an opportunity to trust, but you need to take the step. 
God reveals to you a little more and you're like, oh, I don't know where this road is going. Well, you just trust me, just take another step. If you're waiting on God to show you everything before you take a step, you'll never get there. If you're waiting on to see the entire path before you take a step, you'll never go. If you're waiting for all of your questions to be answered before you step in to Christ, that's not faith. Faith is understanding the unknown and taking that first step. Trusting God's promise, God develops our faith by inviting us to take steps of faith. God increases our faith by inviting us to take steps of faith. Imagine, imagine a, a little bird learning how to fly. You know how that works? Okay, so the baby birds are born, and the mama bird comes and feeds the baby bird until they get strong enough. And, and every day, every day, the, the baby, they see mama bird uh, flying out of the nest. Oh, wow, look at that go. Whew, that's awesome. She soars, she goes up, she goes in and out. Awesome. Finally, the baby birds get big enough, and mama bird says, okay, it's time. Time for what? Time for you to fly. And they look down out of that nest, and they're like, uh-uh, I ain't going to that. I'm not doing that. Like, don't you see me doing it every, like, look, look, at your, look at your wings. Look at your feathers. You got the same thing. Look at your tail. Look at how we're built. Look at, your, look at what we do. Look, this is how you do it. You jump, you fly, you flow, you go, and you, and you soar. And, and listen, you could do it. I'm like, I ain't doing it. That's too high. Mama bird kicks that bird. Bam. Right out of the tree. Imagine, imagine now a full-grown bird that's never left the nest. Never felt the wind between his, uh, under its wings. Never, never rose above the tree line to see the sunrise, to sing praises to God in the morning. Imagine a full-grown adult bird never have ever left the nest. Now imagine claiming to be a Christian and never really trusting Christ. So many people never left the nest. At some point, God invites you to take a step. At some point, God wants to increase your faith. And he says, arise. Gideon takes a step trusting God. He divides the men into three companies. No sword. They light the torch. Trumpet blows. All the trumpet blows. Look at what happens. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were there with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Say middle watch. And when they just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their jars. And they held their left hands with the torches and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, the sword of the Lord, the biscuits, and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and the army ran. They cried and they fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So this is how it works. A torch and a trumpet 
it would, it, would, it would signify a whole battalion. So every battalion would have one trumpet and one torch. And so Gideon places all of his men all around the top of the valley. So when it was dark, it wouldn't seem like 300 men. It would seem like 300 battalions. So they would blow the trumpet. They would open the torch so they could see the light. And what happened is all the people started freaking out. They did it at the middle watch, which means one-third of the men were coming back from watch. One-third of the men were about to go to watch, and one-third of the men were sleeping. It's how the watch works. It's a rotation. And so when the trumpet blasts, the torches were lit, there was all this movement in the camp, and they thought that they were being attacked. And because these people are coming back from camp and these people are going out to watch and these people are sleeping, it's dark, I'm weary, I'm groggy, I grab my sword and I start slashing whoever's in the sight. And the end. And they live happily ever after. Except for the Midianites. Of course. There's not a single Israelite casualty. God turned weakness in his strength. And here's something cool here. Did you notice that God never really explained to Gideon how to win the battle? Like Gideon seems to come up with that whole plan on his own. Like the reduction of Gideon's army forced him to come up with a new plan. And so Gideon's cowardly weakness became the source of his strength. What we need to understand is when we're weak, we are strong. He is strong. When we are scared, he is faithful. And it's better to trust Jesus with the most impossible army than to have a massive army without any trust in Jesus. As Dustin comes and we get ready to close, I want to ask you, where does God want you to be? How is God limiting your army so that you would trust him? What is it? What areas of your life do you need to let go of and trust God with? Where is God inviting you to take a step, knowing that his promise is to be with you? What is God doing in your life right now to teach you to learn to trust him? Listen, unfortunately, Gideon's story doesn't end well. In the end of his life, he seems to get proud. At one point, he, 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 he makes an idol to commemorate his, vic, his victories, and, and, and even all of Israel start worshiping it too. We're going to talk about that next week, but today, I want to remind you that the greatest danger that we face is getting out of a posture of humble weakness. The greatest challenge that we face is this, is this bent toward boasting in our own strength rather than boasting in Christ. Maybe you've walked in this place today and you've, you're feeling strong, feeling confident. Or maybe you walked in this place pretending to be strong, pretending to be confident. Maybe God is bringing you to that moment of weakness today. Maybe today God is limiting your army. Maybe today Jesus is saying, I want to be your security. I want to be your comforter. 
I want to be an ever faithful companion. Jesus is saying today, I want to be your justification. I am the sanctification. I'm the lifter of your head. I am your salvation, no other. If you're looking for salvation today, it's only found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that is only through grace, only through faith in him. Maybe today, God has delivered you from a weakness in the past, but you've slipped back into some independence. And God is saying, listen, wake up. Humble yourself. You'll either praise God or you will boast. You are made to worship. We were made to praise. And maybe today God is beginning a journey in you that you've never realized. Listen, maybe today you need to realize that, that you never overcome sin and death on your own. That you cannot release yourself from the curse of sin. You cannot deliver yourself from the power of death. But listen to me, Jesus does both. He died so that we would trust him. He rose so that he would be with us. And he sends us the spirit to lead us into all righteousness. Would you just simply humble yourself? Lay down all the ways that you've trusted in your own strength. Lean upon him. You have to receive it and take a step. Confess your weakness. Knowledge that Jesus is all you have and that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself. Let us ask him to come into our lives today. Oh, Jesus. Lord, your grace is sufficient for me. Lord, your power is only made perfect in my weakness. And so today we humble ourselves as a church, as men, as women, as fathers, as mothers, as children. Lord, we want to be a people after your own heart. We want to be a people who humble ourselves before the Lord so that your power would be made weakness in our humility. And Lord, today, if you limit our army, if you, if, you, if you give, if you take away, may your name be praised. May your name be praised in my life. May your name be praised in my family. May your name be praised with those around me. Or may your name always be glorified above mine. Oh God, take this wretched heart this prideful, boastful, self-complimenting heart. Make in its place a heart of glory for you, a name for you, praise for you, and only you, only you, Jesus. Lord, today, wash us and cleanse us of all our iniquity so that we would be a church that praises your name above all. Oh, Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. 
In your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're here and